can't get enough eye-popping, jaw-dropping, heart-stopping reality TV. It's the best. Then head to Hey You, home of reality on demand. Stream and download the latest episodes from shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians and The Real Housewives, same day as the US. What's more fun than that? Or binge old faves like The Simple Life and The Hills. That's hot. Hey You, reality on demand. Start your one-month free trial now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a bonus episode of the Slash Filmcast. My name is David Chen, and with me is... Jeff Kanata. And joining us also, uh, he is the director of films such as 10 Cloverfield Lane. His newest work, Playtest, is part of season three of Black Mirror, streaming on Netflix right now. Dan Trachtenberg, welcome back to the Slash Filmcast. How are you doing today, Dan? I'm good. Thanks for having me, friends. I appreciate being here. Uh, congratulations on both the release of Playtest as well as the birth of your new child. Uh, Thank a lot, you. A lot going on this year. First question, which one more important? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the answer to that, Jeff. Jeff, who's <laughs> also had his dealings with uh, having a child recently. But, uh, Dan, th- what an exciting year it's been. I, I thought it would be a, a long while before we uh, got you on the show to talk about something you created just because, you know, movies – their production time is often uh, in the years, um, but glad to have you back on again. Not only that, Dan, could you have predicted uh, at the beginning of this year when 10 Cloverfield came out that the film you made, 10 Cloverfield Lane, would make more money domestically than Richard Linklater's new film, Steven Spielberg's new film, as well as uh, Michael Bay's newest film? I mean, it's basically like one of Paramount's only hits this year, right? So Michael Bay? Oh, Yeah. Uh, I could not have predicted that. No, I would not have predicted that. Congratulations. Over $100 million worldwide, uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. So, uh, I also really... think it's it's likely to be on a lot of people's top 10 lists at yeah. the end of the year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Certainly hearing, will be on mine. Hearing some Oscar talk for John Goodman. That would be great. That would be very uh, much deserved. And I, and I also think if it were to happen – it would not be necessarily just because of this movie. <laughs> Though he's earned that. It, it, it would, if that were to happen, it, I, I'm very well aware it would be because it's one of those long overdue situations. Um, but that is cool that people are talking about that. Well, uh, let's dive into your newest project, Black Mirror, uh, Season 3, Episode 2, entitled Playtest. Uh, and one of the things that I'm just very curious about is, you know, we spent a lot of time in the last episode talking about the nuts and bolts of uh, making a film project come to life. So this is a whole different business model. Uh, it's not even really television. It's streaming television on Netflix, SVOD. Uh, and uh, it's a show that has like a really strong voice in the showrunner, Charlie Brooker. So how did this opportunity land in your lap and, you know uh, – just describe the process behind hearing about this and and uh, taking it on. Um, well, it wasn't that intricate. It actually occurred just a few weeks after the release of Ten Cloverfield Lane here in the states. I think it wasn't even out yet um, in the UK when they first um, asked about me, and they had already made the first five episodes. They were well under way in production. Uh, they, they completed a couple of them and, and still shooting some. And they needed a director for the final episode of production. Um, obviously, the release order is now a little bit different for the episode that I did called Playtest. It's episode two now in the right. uh, Netflix order. Yeah, but, it's, it's almost like creators put a lot of work into sequencing the episodes. Um, yeah, that's, I, a whole, that's a whole separate matter that Jeff Kanata and I have been arguing about. But con- continue, though. Oh, oh I, missed, I missed the conversation <laughs> about that. Well, it's almost um, like friends who ask friends which order to watch things in <laughs> – uh, can also be influential, but you know that's neither here nor there. Go yeah, ahead, yeah. Yeah. go Answer ahead, yeah, please. Was go that ahead. in the last episode that you guys did? It was on the last episode. That's right. Yeah. What was the order that you were? Basically, uh, no, Jeff, it wasn't even. It Jeff, wasn't about this. It was about. <laughs> Jeff was asked about, me uh, which episode of High Maintenance he should start with, and I uh, help, I helpfully suggested episode one, uh, which his wife found very distasteful, and uh, so so the, a debate raged as to how. Seriously, we should take the sequencing of episodes by creators in an anthology show such as this. Anthological, yeah. Um, Yeah, it was – I know Charlie, the creator, Charlie Brooker, man, Annabelle, um, his producing partner, they they talked – we were talking a lot about 
how we could mess with the Netflix front end and um, is there a way to make the episodes appear randomly for everyone so that, so that no one paid attention to order? Um, but that proved to be too challenging and ultimately it has to show up in some sort of order right. as much, much to his chagrin. He really didn't want that to be the case, but yeah. Cause um, there's like other implications too, like IMDB and paying people like there's how it's, you know, recorded right. in the public record and stuff. Oh, that's interesting. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, so, so anyway, that, so, that is so, a super short time horizon. Uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane release date, March 11th, 2016. It's late October. We're recording this podcast right now. So within like, uh, six, seven months, you put this whole thing came together, right? Yeah. I, I mean, the really remarkable thing is that 10 Clover Lane took three years to make, and this took three months to make. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I, 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 let, I went to the UK and flew back three months later, having made something. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I love what I made. I'm just as proud of what I made here as, as I was doing the movie. So it's incredibly seductive to get into this TV biz. Part of that is because Charlie is so talented uh, and so fast. He, he, I showed up there. My first phone conversation with them was over a treatment for the episode. And, and, and like I said, it was only a couple weeks after the, the American release. They hadn't even seen my movie yet. They had just heard about it and um, had an inkling. And then Annabelle went and saw it uh, before our second conversation, our second Skype conversation, and, and she had flipped for it and was terrific, and she screamed and all those things. And Annabelle and is who in this? Equation? Annabelle Jones is. Um, it's Charlie and Annabelle. They're the uh, they're the producing team of of Black Mirror. They they met on a, on a show called Dead Set that they made together a few years ago as well. That's also now out on Netflix. Um, and uh, now, were you a fan of Black Mirror before this? Because uh, I know the slash fan. filmcast, we we loved it as well. Uh, yeah, I actually, I mean, I remember. I'm sure I heard about it over Twitter, but specifically Mary uh, Winstead on when we were shooting Cloverfield Lane. She uh, there was one lunch where she like it was the Monday back after a weekend, and she was like, "I devoured the show Black Mirror over the weekend." And I was like, "Oh my god, I'm hearing about it!" So as soon as I got home from from New Orleans, I I started devouring it. So yeah, I loved it. I was I was kind of in. Before I even read the treatment for the episode, I was like, well, I'm definitely going to do this. Um, and it's, and it's different than, than other TV shows, too, in the sense that you, you got to basically make a short film, right? Because it's not like it had to tie into any other episodes. There's no continuity. There's no, not even any of the same actors. I mean, it's, it's, it's completely different than most TV experiences, right? Yeah. That, I mean, that, that was, besides loving Black Mirror, that was why I, I was basically in um, having, having before even reading because – um, you know, it's important for me to, you know, it's interesting. I'm like this with video games, as you probably know, Jeff, too. Or maybe we all are a little bit like whenever you get deep into a game um, and then you leave it for a while, the thought of going back to it and trying to remember where you were, what the story was, what your skills were, what your relationship to the characters are. That's so daunting that it just becomes a thing that you don't do. And I think about that a lot in terms of television. If I were to ever get involved in episodic TV, it's, it's not that appealing for me to even something like Game of Thrones, um, which is a show that I love and, and we all love um, and is culturally you know, significant. The idea of just doing an episode of that where the actors all know and understand their relationships and their characters far more than I could, um, even being a fan and – the dynamic of the crew and all that, none of that is appealing to me. All that is super daunting and it's also not as rewarding because you don't really get to be as you, you know, you right. don't really put your heart where your heart on your sleeve when you're making the thing. So you come in as the new guy. Everybody else has been there for years. Yeah, you're the new guy. Yeah. yeah I, I, so I've heard where a, directors add a lot of value in the television directing process is like, if you have a major set piece, for instance, like with uh, battle of the bastards in, in this recent season of game of Thrones, you know, that's something that a skilled action director can lend their hand to. Um, but also primarily because the characters and their relationships are already all set. It's really the side characters that uh, get a lot of work. Like, you, you know, the, the, the character, already, they already know what the character, the actor knows what the character is at that point, but the, uh, the guest stars or the side characters, I feel like, uh, from what I understand, uh, a new director spends a lot of time working with them. Does that resonate mm. with you at all? That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, to, to a degree, but I mean, the, and the job is so all-encompassing that, that everything that you're doing is, I don't know, just, it's, it seemed, anyway. So what felt more appealing to me was, you know, the idea of doing a pilot, 
Um, or, you know, di- didn't even occur to me, oh my God, yeah, Black Mirror, I get to like make another movie basically. Um, and come to find out when I got the treatment for this episode that it was very much up my alley. It was entirely centered around video games. And Charlie, they didn't even know that I had this background doing the Totally Rad show. Uh, where we reviewed video games for years. And Charlie has a similar background. Charlie was a video game journalist as well uh, in the UK. So we both really hit it off and found this format to to express our love for gaming and include so much about how we understand the culture of it, the industry of it, and all of our favorite games and stuff uh, in the episode that's about video games to a degree. So... Um, so yeah, so it was basically a couple weeks after the movie started getting these phone calls and we really hit it off and then I was off to uh, the UK. Originally, actually, this, the, the episode was going to take place partially in Japan and that was also very appealing to go um, spend some time in Japan for the first time. Uh, and then as soon as I got there... Charlie had uh, taken that bit out and sort of reconfigured it and wanted to know what I thought. And I was like, uh, I really want to go to Japan, but I think you made a good decision. So, you know, I had a really little miniature life crisis there of like, I was want to take that trip, but um, ultimately it, was, it worked out so much better. For you, you've been tested as to whether or not you're going to support the story or Dan's right. personal travel needs. <laughs> or my and you passed the test, Dan. So congratulations. Yes. Thank uh, you. So uh, what contributions did you make to the script? You know, what, like, what was it like working with Charlie? He has the sole writing credit on this one, I believe. Yeah. Um, so like, wh- what additions did you make? I, my understanding, I've read some interviews that like you added the ending. And we should say that um, there's going to be spoilers for the episode of Playtest, so you know, go watch that episode on Netflix. Come back, listen to this interview. Um, yeah, please. But uh, yeah, like, that you had like added uh, like a Bioshock reference as well as uh, the second ending that happens, the second like wake up thing that happens. I, I would not say that I added that ending, but but um, the ending was definitely different in the tree. So a lot of it was very different. Yeah. So so wh- how did you f- you know shape and mold the tree? Well, it was very. It wasn't. It wasn't like I came in and said it has to be this. It was extremely extremely collaborative um and charlie has a very strong authorship on all of them uh they're all very much in his voice um in his uh devious mind but um it was he was extremely collaborative especially with this one so so the character of cooper changed quite a bit originally and that that mostly came from casting wyatt actually um originally he was someone who uh, was really he was kind of not a great guy and throughout the whole thing and you're kind of hoping that he would learn this lesson you know you sort of wait come on dude learn that you know he, he was he was that horror movie trope and I think that we were able to shape it into someone that was a little bit oblivious and aloof but but somewhat but you kind of cared about him and you understood why he was the way he was and you're you're sort of rooting for him to learn a lesson rather than waiting for him to learn a lesson you know mm-hmm. um yeah. that was a big deal and then yeah the ending shifted a little bit um from a from a uh practical standpoint and then also from a, a storytelling standpoint and a lot of the set pieces, so to speak, those those horror moments in the house changed quite a bit throughout the whole process as we unraveled things. And um, so the scares were all different things at different points. But it really was, you know, page by page, we would comb through and, and make sure everything was what we wanted it to be. But ultimately, it certainly is um, Charlie's, uh, Charlie's thang. Uh, but one of my favorite things about the episode is is how um, the you know the Wyatt's character is constantly commenting on the experience, uh, almost like a, a scream movie, you know, perhaps mm-hmm. where he you know he he says there's going to be something behind there. I know it, mm-hmm. uh, which I love because I always you know you you always feel that as you're watching. And there's a couple of moments where I turned to my wife and I was like, oh, there's going to be something behind there. And then he, and then Wyatt goes, oh, there's going to be something behind there. And I'm yeah, like, yeah, oh, I, I so said great. the exact same. It's like a very postmodern approach to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, now was that always part of the take, or did that sort of come later? <sighs> I partially can't remember, uh, 
So the other party wants to go, no, that was totally me. Um, <laughs> but I actually, I do think, I mean, it definitely, yes, that definitely came through our conversations and that, that shock construction, if you're talking specifically about the uh, cabinet, you know, what's yeah. pushing into the cabinet, leaving all that negative space, that, that did come from, I mean, we've had conversations about that, you know, even during the yeah. Tilly Rad show and horror films and stuff like that. So that um, was something I, I wanted to do very much. And, uh, and, and, and it really came from an interest for me in, in laying out I, those scares and thinking of the math of it and knowing what, where we're expecting, what craft things you can do to get people to expect something. And then, so, cause even after that cabinet thing, it's then the shadow and then, it, and then the shadow does the scary thing. And then it's another foreground object. So, right. um, it was always kind of, a, I'm sorry it. to interrupt you. No, that, no, no. It's kind of a, that's kind of a, a line you have to walk, right? Because if you go too far on the comedy side, then it isn't actually ever scary. Right. And you kind of wanted it to be also scary, right? Yes. That was a very tricky thing for, for, for the producers to trust me and the editor and, and the cinematographer with and um, because things aren't necessarily scary on set. Um, they're not scary in, in, until you have sound and and especially with Cooper's sense of humor, it was a bit of a dance to know. And Heat and Wyatt as well, you know, always was always challenging. What am I what am I taking it seriously? What am I not taking it seriously? And um, that all was very challenging to figure out because there's a lot of elements of this story but i think many thrillers and horror films where something uh may not be scary for the character but it's scary for the audience right he's in this house alone he's not hearing the music that's building the sound design that's pounding um he's just looking at a painting for instance in that one sequence so it was it was all and it, and it was also like, when does he stop being aloof and, and all that stuff? Uh, so it was, it was challenging to figure out, but it was all very much considered. I'm curious uh, a lot about kind of the visuals of the world that you created in this episode. Uh, like what was your hand in shaping them versus like Charlie Brooker's, you know, uh, did you approve the design of the little nipple that goes on the back of the neck, you know, or of the gaming like that that happens in on the table? Like, uh, how did you interact with that element of pre-production? Uh, I, you know, I I was very hands-on, but and Charlie, Charlie, it's funny you mentioned the nip, the nipple, the mushroom, um, <laughs> because that that really is Charlie's strong suit. That really is his thing. He he really. He kind of embraces the director's vision for all things, um, but when it comes to the tech, he's incredibly hands-on, and I think that's also what we all love about Black Mirror is yeah. that yeah. it so really true. doesn't dumb down the tech. It, in fact, it always seems very insightful and, and very like yeah, plausible exactly. Um, I'm impressed and, that they seem to design a separate OS for every single episode this season. Like it seemed I, like every episode is like a different OS on the phone. And I was and like, it Whoa. is one yeah. production designer leading that charge. It's been on every single episode of all the seasons. Um, and they, he's like he's a great guy. This guy Joel Collins who, who has to and he did just of note he did um, the Jeff. What's your favorite book? The number forty two. Um, Oh, Hitchhiker's, Hitchhiker's Guide. He yeah. did the Hitchhiker's uh, movie um, yeah. and Son of Rambo. Great-looking great uh, great movie. Yes, yes, uh, yes. So he he's had to design like a million iPhones <laughs> that are all slightly different and right. all those interfaces. And Charlie is a stickler for those interfaces. And I know there's some filmmakers in the season that were just like – it's just like whatever comes to those decisions, Charlie made all those decisions. And he just worried about other things, you know? It's so important, though, for a show like this, and it really, it really makes it, it. You can tell that you know that is that's a priority, and it really sells because it's one thing when you have a show that's you know set like two hundred years in the future or something. It's like right. who, who cares? But when you have a show that's set like day after tomorrow, like all of the Black Mirrors are, it it really needs to feel like this is a plausible reality, right? Yeah. No, to- totally. And I I think we all have the same bugaboo when it when it comes to that tech usually in television shows and sometimes movies where it's really dumbed down and it's you know giant graphics on a screen that tell you what you need to know and that's all very seductive because 
there's a lot of time, a lot of information is, is needed to be extracted from those screens. But, but thankfully, Charlie's a real stickler for authenticity um, and his version of authenticity. But to answer your question, because that was my bugaboo as well, yeah. uh, we really did. And, and all, we're designing like cool video game tech. So it was a sort of a, um, an exciting moment for us both to really uh, hone in on what all the stuff would look like. And yeah, that mushroom at one point was going to be white like uh, Nintendo Wii. At one point we talked about it being gray and red like the original Nintendo and then hmm. eventually became piano black. Um, but uh, all that stuff I, was a joy to figure I out. I love the holes in the back of the headrests and everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like when he yeah. sits down in a chair, you see the holes first before you know he's about to be jacked in. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, this is one of those chairs. Right, it's great. right. I, yeah, I have a bunch of questions was, about yeah. like specific decisions you made. Uh, and mm-hmm. so uh, I'd like to dive into just a few of these. Firstly, Bruce Lee in the chat room, we're broadcasting live right now, says, The spider on episode two reminded me of the one in Carpenter's A Thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, was that an inspiration for you, Dan? I, I really like the look of the spider. Like, what was your approach to that? Did you ever th- uh, was there ever a conversation about doing it practical? What elements of it were practical? Just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it was. It was uh, certainly the thing inspired uh, for all of us, um, and we did talk about practical stuff, but we. I mean, I. It's funny too because like Sonia's head was a practical thing, and I sort of reinforced my feeling about practical stuff. And it's very, very common to hear uh, from a, from filmmakers and also from critics and fans to say, "Oh, I wish we had more practical things," and I hate CG and all that stuff. I actually feel quite differently about it. I find um, unless something is amazing truly amazing, which takes a lot of time, not, not a few weeks, <laughs> which is what we had. Um, uh, I find it to be more distracting because I'm, I'm in awe or interested in look at that built thing. Right. Rather, like I'm so glad Gollum was what he was because he, he felt like a creature to me, not a puppet or a person in a suit and whatever. Now people can say literally the exact opposite of what I'm saying about CG. And at least it's like actually a, a thing that's made of real substances in life. And that's why they love it. Um, but I feel differently. Um, and, and I, typically it takes some augmentation to make something actually feel uh, truly real. And, cer- and certainly Sonia's head um, took a lot of augmentation. It was, it was really fun that we did it practically and really exciting but I also my heart was in my throat throughout all the post process before we got to augment it because it was really cheesy. <laughs> it felt like you know like on set it looked really cheesy. Yeah, it felt like season one of Buffy, you know, and I was like truly terrified. Um, but with CG, you were you're less terrified. You you just trust. Yeah, that it we barely use CG. It was more compositing and and color correcting it and, and doing things to it. But it was really tricky. Um, anyway, that, that, I'm, I'm not answering about the spider. So the spider, yeah, was immediately like, we, this has to be a CG thing. Now, we did shoot our actor, um, his face, so that we could borrow it. Because a CG face, as we all know, is, is fairly challenging, especially the eyes. Um, so we really uh, utilized having him on set uh, in position to make that uh, look as good as it possibly can be. Um, and there was so much back and forth on how much uh, of the man is there and how much is the spider is there. Right. And and it really was quite the dance to figure that out. Mouthful of dicks. Is that what he says? It's a mouth has a mouthful of dicks. It was, (laughs) it was originally that line was originally, it looks like a vagina with teeth on it. Uh, but then when the special effects came in, we realized it looks a little bit less than the vagina with teeth on it. So Wyatt, when we were doing um, uh, VL, he, he, we were looking at it and came up with an, a new line there. But um, yeah, it's got those two mandibles that kind of look like phallic uh, uh, Very cool. I, I think it is definitely uh, scary. I think you strike a good balance of making it look kind of otherworldly but also like within the universe uh, of what you're trying to create uh i want to ask you about the score uh i finished black mirror season three at this point and the music budget 
for this show feels like it's massive. Um, but I believe you used Bear McCreary again to uh, score sure this did. episode, right? So, uh, so I'm getting like, was it ever an option for you to use uh, like uh, you know other kinds of music, or did you know immediately like this has got to be uh, a, an original score? Um, no, I th- I assumed it would be an original score, and when I showed up to do my episode, they had already done episodes with Max Richter uh, scoring one episode and Clint Mansell scoring another episode. So, uh, you know, they were like, when I brought up the idea of, of Bear doing it, they're like, yeah, like, like whoever, whoever you want, like you go shoot the, for the moon. Cause it, it, they really um, did not uh, sacrifice anything for that. But also I think a lot of not only those composers, but all of the crew, um, uh, really wanted to do the show, so I think you know budgetary constrictions, um, restrictions for other shows uh, didn't necessarily apply for this as much because people really love Black Mirror and wanted to work on. It. I know that's how a lot of actors came to it. That's how other writers had come to to it. You know, um, everyone is such a fan of this. Um, the people were more generous with their with their time. Yeah, if you make something great, then it makes it easier to make great things later on. I, I guess <laughs> definitely. Uh, so, but Bear, I thought, did a tremendous job, and he did. A, the score was almost more like what I initially thought the Ten Clover Lane score would be. It's more like how we tempt Ten, Ten Clover Lane. Um, it's very synthy, very synthy, like part. inspired by like old school video games. It felt like to me, at least. Well, yeah, well, there's there was a degree, you know, some of there's a degree that's very John Carpentery, um, and then there's another degree that is uh, very chiptune uh, and, and video game inspired. Yeah. And that was the big, my big. Uh, that I didn't know if it would even sound good, but I thought about it follows um, and how well it worked for that and. Um, and just instinctually felt like it's got to be cool. And Bear was like, you don't understand. I've been waiting my whole life to do, to do that. I can't believe it. And I was like, okay, well, if we're both feeling good about it, then it should be good. Um, and it turned out really, really, really cool. Um, yeah, I agree. Really it's so excited. Music is so good in that episode. Yeah, it's very, it, te- it ratcheted up the tension uh, really nicely. Mm-hmm. There are at least two shots in this uh, episode of Black Mirror that I was in awe of the craft, Dan hmm. Trachtenberg. Um, wow. and, and of course, they're both like long, continuous shots. Um, Unfortunately, it's also at most two shots. Yeah, it's actually, that's actually the only <laughs> two shots, the only two shots that were impressive. Uh, uh, but there was, there was one shot where I think it's like Sonia uh, is fighting him and he, and he kills her and like, it, it, you know, the camera pushes him really close on his face and then as it pulls out, you realize that Sonia is no longer there and like nothing is there. Mm. Right. And mm-hmm. that, I think that was all done in one long shot. Uh, mm-hmm. and then there was also at the end when he reaches the access point in that room, uh, a lot of that is done in one shot as well. Right. Yeah. Um, so were the, firstly, was there any digital stitching or were those actually practically done as one shot? Like specific, specifically when Sonia is on him, there's like blood and knife stuff all over him. Like, yeah. did you really figure out a way to practically remove all that? No, that was the, 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 the blood, uh, he had blood on his shirt. There was no, we didn't have a knife. A lot of the knife in that scene is digital. Um, there's a couple of practical knives, but most of it's digital. Or most of it's, like, we shot an element and then we comped it in. But um, they just had to erase the blood. That was actually the last effect to get done was mm-hmm. them cleaning up that shirt, like, weeks ago. But, um, the yeah, it's interesting because that shot was, there was originally a much more... Uh, overly clever version of that that was basically the if you remember the opening shot of the others um, I was just going to do that shot um, and which is the same idea but it was it was just a little the camera was more would have been more Dutch on his eyes and it would have been more of a slicker crane move revealing mm-hmm. and Wyatt's performance was really incredible and our operator we just kind of felt that, knowing that that was a shot we needed to get, it just sort of happened, um, and we were like, "That 
doesn't it's not gonna get better than that that's great let's just make and it felt so much more organic in the scene that way anyway so we just did that also you're we running out of time so <laughs> that, that happened as well similarly running out of time yeah that scene that you're referring to when he reaches that access point room um you had like one day to shoot so you're just like let's just do it all in one shot basically. well it was really going over the coverage and and starting to go through what the wide would be before we went in and as we started going in it was like you know what we could it could just keep going couldn't it yeah and like okay well if he does this this and this instead and then okay and then well could you if we built the track over here could then it just keep going and it's like oh right it could it kind of organically informed itself it was like oh wow this actually could carry um and then why it you know let us know how many of those he could have in him so to speak and because right. it, uh, it's like me- several minutes so you can't just do like 50 of those right it's pretty yeah it was a pretty intense shot the unfortunate thing too was that it also then involved this effect where because he walks in through a he, door yeah. and then that door had to be painted over which was budgeted and thought about to be in a piece of coverage but because the shot carries the whole time, and then we actually push so close into that mirror, but a piece of that wall is still on the right side of frame. So, like, uh, yeah. we got really close in the detail of it that they didn't think would. I mean, that all became a real thing. But thankfully, uh, gotcha. we had great effects artists who pulled it off. So, so, yeah. so it was a real door that he walked into, and then when the camera kind of pans back, it's a de- like digitally painted over. Uh, like a wall. It's a real right? door in a separate part of the house, so even the hallway had to be painted in. <laughs> hallway behind him. Yeah, I really made it hard on everyone. Um, so uh, that is so, so cool. Yeah. Though, how, how many shooting days were there for this episode? By the way, there were eighteen days. Wow, very healthy schedule. Very yeah. healthy schedule. Well, why don't why don't we talk about the ending of the yeah. episode? So uh, there, it reminded me a lot of Existence, actually, the David Cronenberg film. If you've seen that. I'm not. I know it. I've never seen it, and I've I've been now been reading this comparison. And I remember it came out when it, when the Matrix came out. Everyone compared to it. dark. It was like Dark City and Existence were like, yeah, we've already it's already happened in those movies. But um, yeah, I never saw Existence. But that yeah. is a, that is a compliment I'm trying to give you because uh, awesome. I really I really like that movie. Uh, but end of this episode, uh, the character Wyatt wakes up, uh, and it, it was all, basically it was all a dream. And then he goes home. Uh, Wyatt Russell's character, Cooper, I should say, uh, goes home, finds that his mom has forgotten him, and then uh, wakes up again. And you discover that, hey, he's still back in the first test, like the first game. And uh, his mom's cell phone had like messed, with, messed up with the upload. And as a result, Cooper is basically brain dead. Uh, so, uh, I, I, again, I read, like, well, and you said earlier this episode that you didn't contribute that ending, but I, I guess I'm curious, like, you know, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on approaching an ending like that? You know, because uh, if you do it too much, like if you're too heavy handed with it, people, it, it can almost seem comical, like, oh, and then this is all a dream too. Like we're actually back, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. if it becomes too recursive, then it's like, it's yeah, it's like a dream ex- on. There, yeah. There's a great episode of Dream On, that HBO show back in the day. I don't know wow. if you guys remember. Really going with the deep cuts of the references here. It's, it's phenomenal. I should see if it's on somewhere because this one episode, like he woke up. Oh, it's like the Saturday Night Live sketch. It's the Natalie Portman Saturday Night Live sketch. Did the same thing, right? Where she keeps – the guy keeps on waking up in yeah, the dream. Music over, over. Hits the music. Over, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, it's tough. It's a tough uh, line to walk. Yeah. Uh, and so how did you approach it and, and – um, was it was that always the ending? Like, did you there was, reserve a different ending? You know, like how, yeah, how there was there was there was the ending was a little bit different. There was an ending where you see him being dragged away to like an insane asylum um, at one point, and then and then he wakes up. He just woke up back in the office, um, not the not the um, white test room, but the show's office, and we find okay, he's okay, and, but it wasn't. Uh, guys, uh, it's hard for me to remember, but I'm, I, I actually am not sure if he even ever went home to the to the mom in that. It just was, okay, no, he's back and he's fine or something. Uh, I could be lying. I don't remember. But um, the then the rug, then we wanted to do the double rug pull. Um, I know at one point it didn't go back all the way to the white room. 
And that was a whole that was a whole conversation of feeling like it, it really if it's going to feel like a, a rug pull that you want to. Can't get enough eye popping, jaw dropping, heart stopping reality TV. It's the best. Then head to Hey You, home of reality on demand. Stream and download the latest episodes from shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians and The Real Housewives, same day as the US. What's more fun than that? Or binge old faves like The Simple Life and The Hills. That's hot. Hey You, reality on demand. Start your one month free trial now. All the way back, you know. You want to go, uh, if not to the beginning of the episode. You know, you right. want to. You want to go to the earliest possible conceivable point, right? Sorry. Exactly. But you also want it to mean something, so you, you don't want to just be like, because you don't, because it isn't all a dream, of course. You know, so and you don't want to just say it's all a dream. It wants to be commenting on something. Um, so uh, and so, then it, and so then it, we, sorry, go ahead. Was, and then we arrived at it being caused by the mom's phone, uh, which was nice because it had this duality of commenting on technology in some way, but, but also it being now like, I think originally too, when I was saying how, how when we first were talking, how the initial version of this, it was sort of waiting for Cooper to learn a lesson. It also felt like the mom was the problem. Like she was being neurotic and she was a worrier. And that's why Cooper was leaving because his mom was always worrying. And, and both Charlie and I have neurotic moms and uh, related to that. Uh, but then as time went on, we were like, you know what? I don't want to make a thing that's saying my mom is bad, you know, yeah. and uh, and that that kind of worry is not a good thing. Uh, and then it became this uh, sort of morality tale and and, uh, and 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 sort of I, I wanted everyone at the end to feel like I should be calling my mom and that this was his own doing that none of this would have happened. He didn't die because his mom called him. He died because he never called her back. Oh, uh, I see. So, so the message isn't that moms are annoying and they can sometimes kill uh, you. you know, annoy you to death. As <laughs> right. Well. Right. Oh, that it, that more be, especially in an episode that's all about facing your deep seated fears and not, and, and you get deep seated fears because you put things off. Um, and here's the guy putting, putting things off, waiting for, I'll just talk to her when I get home, I'll, you know, I'll deal with it later. Um, and you're not getting the chance to do that. Um, I, I will just say that like from a personal standpoint, uh, I, I, I thought the scene where he comes home and his mom doesn't remember him. Like, I understand why you needed to make that, uh, kind of a dream sequence as it were, like not real because it does feel a little otherworldly, but man, that really got to me. Like that scene when, where her, the mascara is running all down her face from the crying and she doesn't remember who he is like that to me, that is like every child's worst nightmare. You know, and just to see it on screen, even though like I know it's not real in the universe of the episode, but to see it like that, it really kind of uh, shook me. You know, uh, wow. and so and so, but then but then the, the the fact that it was all a dream, I don't know. In some ways, undercut that incredibly powerful emotion I had. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, uh, so I guess I'm still what I'm saying is I'm still sorting out my feelings on the ending. Got it. Um, Got but it. but the, certainly there are parts of it that were super effective to me. Like, yeah, when he gets home, it's just like – because, you know, we all have parents. Like, we all – no one wants to be at that point where, like, it's too late. Like, you could have done something, but it's too late. Uh, although I guess ultimately that is the message of the episode, right? Right. Like, yes. that you, you need to act now um, because you don't know how much time you have. Yeah, this, this device that – uh, connects us also helps us ignore each other, you know, it yeah. sort of does both things. Um, and this, this is, uh, you know, some, this episode, unlike other episodes of black mirror, isn't entirely fixated on that comment. So right. it's something that, um, you have to look a little closer at, but it, I, I hope it is there for people. Um, I, did you guys pick up on the music? There's a motif in the, in the, I'm sorry, this music, but also the sound design, um, where throughout the episode you hear um, a thumping uh, and it's basically a slowed down version of the phone ringing and oh. a slowed down version of the interference at different points. And then right at the end you hear that slowed down uh, sort of uh, coagulating into into the natural sounds in the test room. I did not hmm. catch that, but I'm going to go That's back cool. and check that out. That's pretty there, awesome. I have to say there's a ton – there is a ton, almost every scene uh, in the first half of this has something in it setting, you know, setting up something in the second half of it. Everything in the first half informs 
the, the sort of you know fever dream, so to speak, of of the second half. So it's a, it's it's there's a lot of treasure at the end of that uh, hunt to uh, on, your, on a second watch. I have a, a few other assorted questions, but Jeff, I want to make sure you have uh, any time to ask what you uh, might be wondering about. No, no, no. Go ahead. Uh, so uh, one thing I noticed in the episode, like clocks were a big motif. Was mm. that was that intentional? Because there were a bunch of scenes where there was a massive clock in frame. Yeah. Uh, so what, what was the thinking behind that? It was not a technical – I mean, sorry. Was it, it was a technical motif, not a emotional motif uh, or, or uh, any sort of symbolism. It was just um, – Specifically, I know Charlie felt, you know, wanting uh, coherence and clarity in terms of how much time had passed, I actually, yeah. and to help people understand, oh, only one second has passed because we're back at 538, you know. Right. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Super cool. Super cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, Dan, got to pick a nerd nit with you, okay? Mm-hmm. If everything that he was seeing in that house was in the video game – why are you cutting to security footage, man? Like, what's going on with that? Like, shouldn't we be seeing everything from his perspective? This is an ultra nerdy nitpick. I don't know. Do, do your well, a it's a game. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it's so it's not a dream. It's a game that it's a game technology that's in his brain. Yeah. Um. So so that answers that because who knows what that is? But I'll go a step further and say in dreams. Uh, is everything in first person for you? You never find yourself looking at someone. Sometimes I'll be in a conversation with someone in a dream, and then I will be then I will suddenly be that other person that I was just having a conversation with. Um, that, that all makes that all makes sense, Dan. I, so, I think. Firstly, I'm being very facetious, you know. I like, know, uh, I know. But, but I'll, I will also just say that uh, the purpose of those cutaways was to make the audience realize like what's real and what's not real, right? Uh, and, and oh, is he actually seeing this for real? You know. Uh, and so it it felt like just a, a bit odd, given that at the end we learn out we learn that none of it was real. So the, all this stuff that you put in to make us think that it was real was actually not real. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's also yes, true. I think it was helpful in helping people understand um, because we were ne- we never jumped into Cooper's POV from a mm-hmm. filmmaking standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's because that's something I have a real aversion to. That for for me, that always takes me out. And it, it's one of the most subjective viewpoints you can use yep. as a filmmaker. Yet to me, it, it's the most distancing. So uh, because of that, it was the only way to express when we're not in um, that uh, voyeuristic that the the video uh, POV. Um, that we are kind of, even though we're looking at Cooper, it's a third person narrative, you know, what we're seeing, what he's seeing. Um, and it's only in those moments we get, we get a privileged POV to understand what it looks like for Katie or for the other operatives. So, right, right. Um, I, I will say it is a great moment in the episode when he, you know, he's been touching all this VR stuff and it, it, there's a cool effect when his hand passes through it. And then mm-hmm. when Sonia shows up and he touches her in the face and it, it, his hand doesn't pass through, that <laughs> is like a crazy moment, you know, because then you mm-hmm. realize, wow, in the universe of what they've set up, like this is actually real in, mm-hmm. you know, insofar as anything's real in this whole setup, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, cool. so that was a great moment. I, I really awesome. love that. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and interestingly, it, uh, I don't think you've watched the rest of the season yet, have you? Only, only got to see Nosedive just last night. I'm dying to see the others. Because there I actually is – there yeah. is another episode, Men Against Fire, episode five, uh, mm-hmm. that does use the first person. Uh, right. To, to, right. Great, to great impact, I would and say. And it also is very much about perception and yeah. what's real. Yes. What yeah. Yes. I, I know a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, – San Junipero, Dan. Oh, I can't wait. I know. Yeah. My, I was very uh, lucky, and I worked with this awesome producer, Lori Borg, um, and he produced Nosedive, San Junipero, and, and my episode. So uh, through him, I got to hear, and, and McKen- I've been a fan of Mackenzie Davis forever. Uh, oh, not forever, but for a while. Um, and uh, I was so jealous that, that uh, he got to work with her that she was in that episode. And um, I'm so excited to, to see that. And I've been hearing how, how beautiful it is for, for a long time. I think that was the first episode to finish, actually. That was the first episode they had actually done. Um, but, yeah. 
So uh, I have a – this is a super random question, uh, but I just – I'm curious and, you know, we have the time, so I'm just going to ask you and maybe I'll edit this out later. Um, but I'm curious about diversity in the cast uh, yeah. just because – uh, this is a really diverse cast. You know, you had like a white guy, you had an Asian guy, you had uh, a black woman. Uh, Sonia, I think, is played by an actress who is um, half Nigerian, half Norwegian. Mm, wow, uh, so it's a very diverse wow. cast. Yeah, and uh, like, was that was that just incidental? Was that something you were conscious of, like trying to create a diverse cast? Uh, to you know, like, what, what was it? Like, and Black Mirror as a whole, I should say. Uh, the cast for season three, I think, is very diverse. Um, mm. I mean, episode six is a buddy cop movie with two females at, as leads. So, mm. uh, you, you know, what was your approach to that, if any? Um, yeah, I think so far all of my experiences in casting have been how do we make something diverse um, in, in trying to not just cast ourselves in something. Um and Charlie, I think, writes somewhat gender uh, and racially neutral. Right. Um, and definitely being in the UK, they, they have less um, cultural connections to race. Race is a little different for them um, there than it is for us. Um, but, but yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, we were really – or I was. I was worried about um, the quote-unquote bad guy, even though he isn't a bad guy, being – the Asian, like, you know, <laughs> we didn't want him to be mustache twirly. Didn't want him to be old. Yeah. Um, uh, old, evil, old Asian guy. Uh, but thank you. Same, thank you for that, Dan. <laughs> right, right. But at the same time, then, then, I mean, no matter how you slice it, I was like, oh, this could come off as arch somehow. Right. But thankfully, Ken is such a lovable, warm guy. Um, I liked, I really liked that we got that guy to a place of, he kind of reminded me of like a, a young Doc Brown a little bit. Like he was excited about what he made. Um, He's I, Miyamoto, I, right? Yeah. Yeah. He became Miyamoto. I first, I mean, we talked about um, Kojima a little bit. I couldn't remember the guy at one point. I, I almost, the guy who does dead or alive, Jeff um, with the, like, oh, he's got, uh, yeah. Um, Izagaki. Yeah. Izagaki. Yeah. Yeah. With yeah. The, like patch and all that. I was like, Oh, that would be an interesting dude, but that, that would have come off across his arch. But yeah, having him be Miyamoto ish, uh, was really um, was really fun and made him much stronger. And and Ken is sort of like that in real life. That actor is really like that in real life. So it was terrific. Yeah. Katie, I'm so curious, Dave. You haven't brought this up, I, and I was wondering if this would qualify for you because I'm very aware of your fetish <laughs> of uh, disconnected female computerized voices. Yes, movies and TV. Now this is this is a, this is not entirely disconnected because you are. You, she's a character that you meet, yet at the same time, she is that trope, essentially. Yeah. You're talking about um, uh, Wonmi Mosaku, who plays Katie, the uh, voice on the phone, basically. Yeah, Wumi. Wumi, yeah. Wumi, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, uh, who's awesome? I, I yeah, she did a great job. Very creepy. Uh, and, and let me just also say, with the Asian dude, I thought you did a great job as well. Like, I did never, I, at no point until maybe the very end did I think he was even an evil guy. But, you know, the well, way right. with which he dispassionately disposes of uh, of Cooper's body uh, was pretty chilling and very well done, I thought. My only real regret with him, not re- I didn't know it was, but, like, the one, there's only one time where he doesn't understand English. And it's this ridiculous. Oh yeah, that was pretty. Uh, yeah. That was pretty bad. That, yeah. Like I saw, I was like, he doesn't know. Was it like he doesn't know what the word fun is or something? I mean, like he's super. Yeah, he said super fun. Yeah, it, it. I was like, and then and then later, like literally, like th- seconds later, he's speaking fluently. It's like, um, well, there I don't was know about there this. was. I mean, I'll just tell you from a technical standpoint, there was more of that. There was I more see. of him leaning on Katie, and that all got whittled away. And we need to establish that Katie is this translator for, is this interim, right, you know, between right. him and Cooper and that Katie speaks fluent, um, Japanese as well. So that happened. And then we were cutting and I was like, it's kind of stupid that that's the only <laughs> thing. Like it, it would have been better if Cooper said something that was very much like an American colloquialism. Yeah. yeah. If he uh, said like super califrigilistic expialidocious or something. Well, even that is, is, you know, worldwide, but, um, <laughs> But yeah, it should have. But yeah, that was a, yeah. a goof. But it happened well. so quickly. I was before I could even write it down <laughs> as something to give you a difficult time about. Uh, <laughs> the moment had already passed. So let me point out too. While we're pointing out, uh, this is just a pure joy for me. Yeah, 
if you if ever decide to watch the movie again, at the very end, at the height of Cooper freaking out uh, in the in that access point room, when Katie enters, and Ch- I never even brought this up to Charlie and Annabelle because I was terrified that they would <laughs> want us to address it. They'd be like, "You're fired, Dan." Now, yeah. when, 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 and now I need to let them know. Like, just so you know, take a look, uh, Katie. Look at the cutting of how Katie comes in and sits down. Yeah. Uh, it is totally without continuity. She does it twice. Like it's it's awesome. And if you look, if you watch, because that sort of spurned something in me. And I there's even a cut of uh, the Scorsese um, <clears throat> Wolf of Wall Street. We see all the continuity errors. Like it does not matter at all. Uh, it's so whatever the momentum of a scene is, whatever. Um, feels right rhythmically that's what's important because whether someone's using the right hand or the left hand um there might be glaring to you but uh no one really will pick up on them and it's to the betterment of the scene and that that sequence has the momentum it has because it's double cut like that but it also is totally preposterous so um i see well thank you for ruining the ending of the <laughs> episode for that. me Dan. and ruining wolf of wall street yeah um thanks the thing I was going to say is uh, when you guys were talking about the the disembodied female voiceover, uh, there was one point that I was utterly convinced that the voice changed to the girl that he had slept with. Mm. That doesn't, is that that doesn't happen though, right? No. What are you thinking of? Are you thinking of the the? MAC? I thought when when it, as he was going insane and she had come in and and he was getting stuff in his ear still. I thought yeah. that at one point it changed to that. But I guess just you know me, my American ear, all right. All, yeah, they all sound the same. No, it, it did change. Um, it did. It was changing. Her voice was warping, but it, not to not to Sonia's voice. Ah. That's interesting, though. Well, been an interesting choice. One yeah. of the critiques I've read of the episode, uh, I think it was at IGN. I don't remember where I, exactly, but basically that the game that's being played in this episode is not a conventional game. Like there are no, there's no objectives, you know, there's no uh, like sequence of events that need to happen in order to complete the game. Um, so was that you being a massive video game fan yourself? Obviously video games uh, can take all different shapes and sizes. So I'm not just saying yeah. like, a, a game needs to have those things, but did that ever enter the thought process for you that like, maybe we should make it a more like conventional game uh, you know what? What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, we had a lot of conversations about about <laughs> it being uh, what kind of game it is, and and would we <laughs> would we why would we like? I w- I want the game where I don't leave the chair, not the game where I have to have a haunted house to be in. But ultimately. And this actually got cut out of the episode. There was there was a much larger end scene in the office where we see what the actual game was, even though that ultimately wasn't real either. But where the actual game was, he shows him on the iPad and he says, you weren't actually supposed to leave. This was the game. And he shows him on an iPad, like, the game is, like, basically playroom, like, PlayStation Playroom. It's just, like, he would sit. It would be more like the whack-a-mole game where, like, ghosts are popping out of the um, coffee table in front of him and he's got to whack them or whatever. Like, it was just going to be an on-the-couch game. Um, of course... In the uh, mushroom embedding in itself, it, it was wildly exacerbated and got insane. Um, but that also that's sort of um, post you experiencing it, and as you experience it, what is the idea? I think it was more of a testing out the technology for them. Right. Um, it wasn't like go do this game. It was more. Um, yeah. Does the tech more uh, uh, ch- testing the tech? Uh, though I will say. Um, there are games like At Last, and there are plenty Slender of Slenderman. Yeah, there are plenty of games, especially more, now more than two years ago. You know that are <clears throat> uh, that are experiences are experiential as opposed to uh, go complete this objective. There's, there, I think, there's plenty of objectiveless games. Um, yep. So, uh, someone in the chat asked about the sequence in Japan that was removed. Like, what was that about? He, he was just going to instead of it being in the UK, he was going to be backpacking across the country, and he ends up in Japan Got and you. meets uh, a Japanese girl, and um, and is brought to basically you know Miyamoto or whoever's offices, and it's all Japan and all otherworldly and all. I, I and actually interesting, and I wonder what you think, Dave, but I think one of the first 
feelings of that was that it might feel like we're demonizing that culture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that was the, the first aversion to it. Um, and then it became a budgetary interest. For us. <laughs> and, and then honestly, the, the real convincing, I, I had a tough time aesthetically with it. And then I kind of landed on, I don't know if it's really landed for anyone else, but I, I liked the production design of being of this guy who would um, have loved this aesthetic. He built these games around that old, dusty, British uh, haunted house aesthetic. So he would build his game company in a place like that. Right. Um, and I, I like that we had this combination of old, stodgy, British fireplaces and staircases with the Japanese minimalism uh, with those tiered floors and yeah um, it looked great I, I thought, it looked great yeah I thought that was a cool we hadn't seen um, that production design as much as we'd seen the other kind you know yeah. so well good choice Dan uh, okay. I think that was cool. a good call on uh, on not demonizing Japanese culture I, I mean yeah. even unintentionally I know that wouldn't have been what you're trying to do right um, yeah. but yeah right. I, I think it does it's certainly it's, I think it's, in my opinion, it's very challenging for someone to be offended by playtests, which I think is kind of what you're going for, uh, like you being like any creator. But uh, yeah, I, I thought it uh, it read wonderfully. Um, I wanted to ask you about like video games generally, and uh, you know, one of the things about uh, the, the morals, the takeaways from from this story, like uh, is that. You know, video games could evolve to a point where they become more scary or they're customized experience for you. Like they play to your specific fears um, and we should evaluate the danger in that before we like plunge headfirst into that. Um, do, do you think that element of video games is terrifying or like what scares you about video games these days? Well, I, Other I than thought- Jeff's enthusiasm about VR. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm as, um, I share that enthusiasm, but... Uh, and funny enough, I had not experienced VR when we made this. I mean, I had it at E3 years ago, but not to the extent that I did when I first went over Jeff's place not too long ago. Um, and I've since bought an Oculus for myself because I fell head over heels in love with it, and I hadn't really the, done that. Later that day, he bought an Oculus. <laughs> yeah, later that day. Um, after spending some time on Tatooine. Um, but I... Charlie... And I both feel very similarly about horror games in that we don't like playing them. Um, I, I've played all the Resident Evils and all the Bioshocks, uh, but I, and Jeff, I know, feels similarly about racing games. It's like in my adult age, I realized this is not a fun experience for me. This is, this is anxiety-inducing. I was doing it because it's a great, great, a great game and everyone talks. I want to be... A part of the culture of it, um, but I realized it's not actually fun. I'm having a, it's, it's not fun. It's, it's it's misery for me. Um, so I would never do uh, what what Cooper did, and I and I wouldn't. I, I've yet to play a horror experience on my Oculus. I'm I'm ter- I'm terrified. I, the, the dinosaur scares me in the demo, and there's an, a game like Ocean Rift, and there's where you get to like be floating around the ocean, and there's a shark component. And I was flipping out because uh, you're in a cage and you're just waiting for, you know, Jaws to show up, and it's truly terrifying for me. I'm all in on Whack a Mole though. That that adorable gopher that was very late in the process that that thing became so adorable. And I <laughs> I'm t- I tell you, it, had we known from the get go how awesome that little guy would be, he would be the he would be in the whole he would have been his little buddy throughout the whole. Episode. <laughs> oh, that would have been awesome. Definitely, definitely want to make a move. I want to make that movie. I want to make that spinoff. That's like him going on the adventure in the horror movie, but it's his adorable little friend. <laughs> no, it well, you got to have the the giant scary version of him that shows up at some point to to attack. Right. Right. <laughs> and of course, I don't know if you guys picked up on but in the beginning he's playing a little iPhone game, an iOS game that's a little little mole rat uh platformer that mm. is sort of the inception point of, of that guy as well. To be so. to be clear, I would have asked Dan about all the Easter eggs in the episode, but my my feeling is, Dan, that you want people to find them themselves, right? So I do. I do. Uh, so I'm you know, I'm trying not to make you spell them all out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there are a ton of Easter eggs, ton of video game related Easter eggs. And so, uh, it rewards repeat viewing to find the Easter eggs. Um, Mm -hmm. 
but on that note, random question, and then I and then I have a last question for you. But ra- random question: um, the Whack a Mole game really reminded me of Microsoft Hololens, which is a product I had a, uh, the opportunity to work on uh, for uh, a little bit. Mm. While during my time at Microsoft, and I'm curious, like just the whole setup of it, where you're placing objects in front of him, and then like like holograms are coming out, and like you can interact with them, is very similar to uh, how Microsoft Hololens has been marketed. So I'm just curious, like uh, if that was something that played into the design or conception of that specific game. Uh, yeah, I mean, theoretically, it was, it was basically just augmented reality, right? So it's yeah. a tall lens and Google Glass were our two, you know, the two. Well, even that, the Nintendo 3DS had, or I guess DS before that, had those little QR codes that you would put down on the table, and it would, you know, if you looked at your DS, it would project a. I love I love the little detail of the the fact that they're like little QR code looking things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it, it's very authentic. Yeah. yeah, that I don't even know if that I had that on top of my brain, but it was there was an it was the instinct to make it feel more authentic, feel, feel like you don't want a thing, you never want a tech in something to be, you want it to be a little difficult, like you want it to be a little bit cumbersome, um, right. to make it feel like it's one step ahead, not otherwise it's back to it's you know it's five hundred years in the future, um, and it's nice that like still have a little wire that you need to attach to it to still have a detail. Because all of our things still have these little tethers, they get better, but they're still there. Um, yeah, so, there was a, there's a yeah. there's a moment in the the nosedive episode where she goes and wants to plug the car in, and, yes. and it needs a different so adapter, good. and it's it literally looks like a lightning port. So <laughs> good. And I was just like, yes, <laughs> those things are so those things will never go away. Those little like incompatibility issues. It's so yeah. great. Uh, uh, funny detail. I think. Uh, I can't. I, I don't know if it was the same prop ultimately, but she sticks him. But then she used, sticks him in the back of the head with the mushroom. She has this little device that sticks it in. She sticks it through the hole of the chair, and then it goes in the back of his neck. Yeah. That was a car electric car charger that we. Oh, <laughs> that's awesome! Nice. And I think yeah, I think they had it because of that episode. <laughs> um, so. Dana James Jones in the chat room is asking um, how your experience directing Black Mirror was different from 10 Cloverfield Lane. Obviously, the timeline was much shorter. Uh, Were there any other meaningful differences that you can think of between the two experiences? Hmm. Um, It was, you know, they were both really collaborative experiences. Uh, I mean, one thing that was interesting was working with Charlie as the writer, but also the creator. Um, so things that happen in Ten Clover Lane where we would all decide on what needs to take place and then, okay, now we need a writer to help us develop that or work with a writer, you know, uh, on Black Mirror, it's, uh, it's I'm talking with Charlie one day as the writer and, and asking if something could be more this way or that way. And then on the next day, he's the boss who has the final say on something. You know, um, not that uh, yeah. not that he ever pulled rank. It was every every, and that I mean, uh, I don't know if it's the uh, British kindness in him and Annabelle, but I mean, he he could have pulled rank so often, um, and but it was always a how can we come to an agreement? Where where can we you know what find a way that it's, it satisfies all all feelings, all instincts. Right. Um, and he's really lovely, lovely guy, lovely people. Um, everyone that I worked with was the nicest, uh, the nicest. So, because yeah. ultimately, uh, you know, TV is a very producer driven medium, whereas right. totally. uh, movies are a director driven medium. So, like, you were basically the final boss for 10 Cloverfield Lane, right? Like <laughs> well, JJ was the final boss, but right. but JJ also was not not too dissimilar to Charlie. Was was very collaborative and, right. and differential as well, right? Like different, yeah. very differential. Yeah. Um, but you know, in, in a different way. So, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I think both Charlie and JJ get a, got a lot of respect from the respective studios. So Paramount really trusts JJ. So he allowed us to be able to do whatever he wanted. And Netflix really trusted Charlie's uh, authorship. So they entrusted us to do what we wanted. So um, I had a very similar experience to that end where 
uh, all the interactions with the studios was actually pretty terrific, and and they just gave us good ideas that we could use or not use, and and go from there. So, um, in terms of the speed, do you do you like the pace of a uh, you know TV show better than the pace of a movie? Or you know, I mean, I you- definitely like that. I didn't lose three years of my life to to do something, um, and I like that I could do something of a similar caliber in less time. I think a lot of that is attributed to how fast Charlie is. Um, so I know that that can happen all the time. I, at both times, I must say that relative to the mediums, I had a very comfortable schedule. Um, and I, I really, I had, a, I had a lot of shoot days. Yeah. I had the right amount of shoot days for, for Tank Clover Lane. And I had the right amount of shoot days for this Black Mirror episode. And, the post schedule was not compromised on either end. We had the right amount of time to make things good. Um, and I, that's because I had producers that really cared about quality uh, more than um, uh, time, timing of output, so to speak. So um, more than the release date. Uh, so I really benefited greatly from that, from that great algorithm of good, fast, cheap, pick any two. You know, I really have been lucky so far. And, and what the two that I got to uh, pick. What were the two in this case, by the way? Good, fast, cheap, pick, pick any two. So it was good and... Uh, and, and fast, but not cheap. Not, and not cheap. Yeah, I mean, well... Yeah, because uh, I was saying, like, the, but both of those movies strike me as relatively low budget. Um, but uh, I don't know I what the budget was. The, I mean, I think Tank Lover Lane, you know, we had a year post. So, so I would say that one was good and good and... Good and cheaper, so to speak. Good, that was good and cheap, you know. And we just we took the time. I would say that even both sort of relative to their mediums. Usually, you know, it's like a week to edit <laughs> an episode of TV, a week to shoot, a week to edit it, which yeah. is insane. Um, and then the post is the, the effects of the effects. That's on a you know, this is a new world for every episode. It's not. There's no standing sets. There's no um, set or character or anything that's pre-built that you return to from episode to episode. So it, they are really each one a movie. Last question. Uh, and Jeff, if you have any more, feel free to ask. But uh, a lot of people in the chat room and myself are curious, what is coming up next for Dan Trachtenberg? Uh, what are you working on? What are you excited about? What's going on? I'm really curious too. Uh, I'm excited about a lot of things, <laughs> and I continue to work on the things that I've been working on for a long time. There's a couple movies that I of my own. There's there's a few movies of my own that I'm working with different writers on, different screenplays for um, that I'm very excited about. There's a TV thing of my own that I'm working on, and there's stuff that I'm reading that I'm getting excited about. Different mm. different. Uh, so basically, you can't tell us anything about what's happening. Right. <laughs> All right. That's uh, totally of reasonable. Course. But yeah. uh, hopefully, uh, when the news breaks, uh, you'll be able to talk to us about it. For sure, um, when the news breaks. For sure. <laughs> uh, but I think everyone's really excited about what you'll be working on next. Um, two things out in one year, man. Uh, pretty awesome. And congratulations mm. yet again. Um, so, yeah, Dan, I could talk with you for another, like, three hours about this, but I uh, want to respect your time. So thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Um, other than on Netflix in the Black Mirror series, uh, where can people find more of your work on the Internet? Uh, Netflix, uh, Black Mirror, Playtest Episode 2, uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane out on Blu-ray. Uh Purchasable by on Amazon and other. And you did retailers. a commentary on that, right? You have a commentary and I did with a, JJ. I did a commentary with JJ, and there's really cool behind the scenes special features on, on that as well. Uh, you guys know, right? Because you you bought it, right? You support yep. it. Yeah, right? I, I I actually have it. I haven't watched the commentary yet, but I actually do have it. So, yeah. um, I actually bought it. I had I, they gave me a box of them, and then we moved, and I cannot find that box. Ugh. So when you tweeted that out, I bought it as well, but it got delayed. <laughs> Like I'm still waiting on it. It, it mm. keeps. I'm getting that weird things that happens on Amazon where they send you yeah. like, "Do you still want this? It's been postponed or whatever." Yeah, I'm assuming that's because they sold out because it was such a yeah. hot yeah. It's, it's a hot buy. It's a hot yeah. buy. So, um, and then Danny T at Danny TRS on Twitter. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, very cool, Dan. Uh, and again, thanks so much for joining us here on the Slash Filmcast. Good luck with with whatever comes next. Uh, I think we'll be really looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks for having me.